we begin once again with our series on a biblical theology of place. What does the Bible have to say from beginning to end about place that God has given to us? And I know I've been enjoying it. I uh, hope you have been as well seeing how the Bible unfolds, unpacks these promises of God and these gifts of God as it relates to place. There are a couple of you are here uh, today as visitors, and so I don't know if you've kept up online with the sermon series. I certainly can't recap it, but I can at least tell us, and I want to do it again, in a couple of words, the shortest I can, where we have been in this series so far. So we began with in placed and saw how God put us here. We were displaced, and then we were given the promise of a place, and that was to be the promised place, a holy place, and a place of rest. That's where we've been five weeks in this series right now. And today, we are coming to a place of our own. People dream of having a place of their own, a place that uh, we can call our own, and we can refer to a person's house as their place. We throw in a last name and, or a first name and say that's their place, that's her place, that's his place, that's your place, this is my place, a place of our own uh, in It's a Wonderful Life in a scene uh, where they're early in the movie where they're sitting around the kitchen table. George has said to his father, that he doesn't want to run the building and loan. He wants instead to do something that is big and important in the world. And Pa Bailey replies like this. He says, you know, George, I feel that in a small way we are doing something important, satisfying a fundamental urge. It is deep in the race for a man to want his own roof and walls and fireplace. And we're helping him get those things in our shabby little office. There's something deep in the human race about having our own place. Around the world, we would recognize that homelessness is not a good. It's not a good thing for people to be without a place to call their own, without a place that is a home. So in our reading this morning, and what I'm going to encourage you to do this morning is I think you would find it really hard to follow along in your Bibles. Just open up with me to page five of your bulletin as we visit Philemon's place in the New Testament. Just by way of reminder, Paul is writing to his friend uh, Philemon as he sends back Onesimus, a runaway slave, uh, sends him back to Philemon with hope and with expectation that now having become a believer, Philemon will in fact set him free and allow him to continue to serve Paul as a brother. But listen to the description of the place and imagine it as a place you might like to visit. This is the word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Just a quick pause for a moment. Refreshed as a word is going to come back in the section that I'm about to read as well. Refreshed, just so you're aware, is the exact same word as rest. Last week was about rest, so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, you will find rest for your soul. This is the same word. It's the same rest and refreshment that go together here. Jesus gives it, Philemon gives it. So if you consider me your partner, and he's here already made his request with respect to Onesimus, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises, for the examples, for the gifts that you give to us. Thank you for this place and all of the places that we call home right now. We pray that you bless us and help us to understand your word in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We all live in a particular place in time. And the place in which we live shapes us. The circumstances, the surroundings shape who we are. And we, likewise, shape the places in which we live. They shape us and we shape them as well. To deny or to ignore the importance of place and the place where you live is to deny what God has created and the way he has created us. We need a place. Edith Schaefer, Francis Schaefer's wife, says it this way, it really doesn't matter how much, what kind of place we have, we all need a shelter in which one can run to be separated from the rushing world outside, protected and welcomed to some degree, a place to go out of and a place to come back to. Uh, the last few weeks, I hope that uh, we have enjoyed together seeing how God promised a place to his people and within that place created in particular a, a holy place for the people of God to come and to experience the presence of God and the rest that comes from being in the presence of God. And, and so within the place that God had chosen, he chose a particular place to be 
the focal point and all of our attentions are drawn to that particular point. All other places are understood with respect to that place. That's the place that defines everything else. Israel was drawn to it, to the tabernacle, and then, of course, to the temple as it was established. And, and when you seek to understand place, place with reference to that place, home with reference to that home, that house of the Lord, wherein he dwelt in the midst of Israel. Today, what we're doing, though, is having been to the holy place, we are now looking at the rest of the land. Okay, we're, we're looking at the other places that are around, the other places where people live according to the appointment of God. And by extension, we'll see where they live, and that'll take us right to where we live as well. In order to do that, my plan is to take us on a very quick journey through the scriptures to show us how this idea gets unfolded. Open your bulletins to uh, page six, if you will, so that you can follow along with me and the passages that I've got printed there. Just so you know where this is going, what I'm trying to do is help us to see biblically what is behind the particular place where you live. Maybe you just have a room somewhere. Maybe it's just a bedroom that you have or an apartment that you have or a house that you have. But what I want us to see here is that you're not there by accident. It's not, it's not a random occurrence that you're in the place where you are. Instead, God's hand is at work. God's appointment is at work. And so these scriptures are going to help us to look, in the first place, pretty broadly. Okay? We're going to look at, at with, the, with the widest angle that we can, and then we're going to slowly narrow it down like this as we focus on these scriptures. We begin then where you would expect us to begin, which is with creation, and as the psalmist reflects back on creation. So Psalm 104. By the way, I know there's a lot of text here. I'm obviously not going to look at each passage in detail, but as we work our way through it, I think it'll make sense to you how we're going and the direction that we're going and the way the scriptures take us there. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you had appointed for them. Here's a big picture view of creation. When uh, people look at the world, they may think, well, it's just random that there's ocean here, that there's land here, that there's mountain here, that there's valley there. But what the psalmist says is no, that in fact, all of that is in place according to the appointment of God. It is God who made them to be in those particular places. So the widest angle lens helps us to see that everything, the biggest spaces that we might consider, the biggest places are there at God's appointment. But the psalmist then goes on to take us to the smallest places, to crevices. Okay, so, so we continue on in Psalm 104. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock 
badgers. So, so here's the principle. As wide of a lens as you can possibly get, God has appointed those places. And as small as a crevice as you could possibly get, God has appointed that place as well. And, and, and by extension here, all points in between, but we go to other passages to see that a little bit more clearly as we move along. Now, as we would expect, we'll get to here in just a moment, we would expect to be able to see how the scripture promises Israel a particular place, and indeed it does. But just so we're clear, it is not only Israel that is promised and given a particular place. In fact, all of the nations have been given a particular place. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, this is a reference back to uh, the Tower of Babel and the distribution of mankind after the Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Okay, so all the nations are in their places and God's people, his portion, they are given an inheritance that is their place as well. And that's not just an idea thrown out in the Old Testament, but Paul picks it up in the New Testament as well. Acts chapter 17, I'll read it in just a second. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is at the Areopagus in uh, the, the, the middle of Athens, and he's addressing the crowds, and he says to them, and he, that is God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Allotted periods, that's time. Their, the, the, the boundaries of their dwelling place, that's space, time and space, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. You see the principle here. Paul is saying to them, listen, you are where you are here at the Areopagus, here in Greece. You are where you are at the appointment of God and the calling where you are is actually to seek after God, who is in reality not far from you. All right, we continue on there uh, here, and we see now focusing in on Israel, these specific assignments that are given by God to Israel. And let me just read, and then I'll comment on this text from Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. God had just... Uh, commanded a census to be taken of the people who had come out of the land. So now there's numbers and names associated with the people. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot according to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. The inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. So what we just saw of the nations, that is God determining their places and determining their places according to number, is also true in Israel as well. In a very specific place designed and bordered by God, there are two principles at work when it comes to inheriting the land. One is the principle of lots. 
Okay, you, this decision belongs to the Lord. You're going to use the lots and be given the place that God assigns to you. But the second is related very specifically to the size, to how many people are in your tribe. So that, as you would expect, the more there are, the bigger the place you get, and the smaller there are, the smaller the place that you get. And God is very specific about it. Now, in terms of getting specific, we can see that on a big scale. Okay, this tribe has this region, this tribe has this, that region. These families are here, these families are over here within that particular region. But listen to now how specific we get in terms of the law of God as we see it in these verses in section 4 here that I've marked off, Deuteronomy 19. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old would have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Proverbs. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. So within all of this framing that God has done, we are now down to a rock. A rock that is in a place that marks the difference between your place and my place. And, and the command is so specific that says, don't go up and kick that rock. Don't kind of be talking to your, I know you can't see my feet right now, but don't, don't kind of be talking to your neighbor and kicking the rock over a little bit more so that you get more space. You have to leave that mark where it is. That's how specific God is with respect to place. In fact, uh, uh, in the larger catechism, when it talks about not steal, what is forbidden in the command, do not steal, one of the things that is forbidden is moving the ancient landmark. You, you can't steal somebody else's land by kicking the rock farther off to the side. So it's very particular what God has done. And then let's now look to Leviticus. That's going to help us to understand a last portion of this. Here's the reality. The reality is each part, each family of Israel had a particular plot of land, but in this world, bad things happen. Uh, famine happens, poverty happens, uh, accidents happen. They're all within the providence of God, but they happen. And it may be that you have to forfeit your land. It may be to get out of debt from a poor investment or from a poor yield, you have to sell your place, your piece of property, or even sell yourself into service to somebody else. With respect to that then, those problems are addressed in Leviticus 25.10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. So this is a jubilee year that's being described. When each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. Get back into the place. Get you back into your place. You and your place belong together. And the jubilee year is to say, listen, if nothing else has worked out for the last 50 years, I'm making a year that gets you and place back together in the same place. Uh, and then there's another option that's described in the verses that follow here, verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. 
Redemption of the land could take place in the year of Jubilee, or return of the land at least. The redemption of the land was something else. Redemption of the land could, took, could take place if you were able, as the owner of the land, or if you were the near relative of the owner of the land, you could purchase the debt or purchase back the property for the value of that property and restore family and place back together again. That was true, you were able to purchase out of debt the property that had been forsaken for whatever reason, and, and you could purchase out of servitude the person. If a person had to hire themselves out and was no longer able to be at their land, you could purchase the full value of their servitude if you project it out and bring them back to their land. That process was called redemption, and those who executed the process were called redeemers. And they redeemed both place and person. That's what they could do to bring those things back together. Through redemption, you gain that which you had lost. You regain and are re-gifted that which you had lost. The debt is paid, you get back to the place. Now, if you think of scripture, we might quickly, and, and if you know me, you know this is what naturally comes to my mind, think of the most wonderful, vivid example of that, and, and, and I think of Boaz, all right? You think of the story of Ruth and the story of Boaz and how that whole thing works out. You're redeeming a person and you're redeeming a place and you're getting those things back together again. But of course, the greater reality is that Boaz isn't the best example of that. Jesus is the best example of that. Jesus is the true redeemer. And, and when we think of his redemption, we think in the first place of him releasing us from our bondage. Okay, we have been sold into slavery. He pays the cost of our redemption and brings us out of bondage into freedom. But he doesn't bring us into nothingness. He brings us into place because that's what redeemers do. Redeemers don't only redeem people, they redeem place. So Romans chapter 8 says that the creation itself through the work of Christ, through redemption, is going to be set free from the bondage to which it was subjected. That, that's Exodus language, of course, um, and that's language of redemption. And the idea here is that Jesus is what all earthly redeemers pointed to. He is the redeemer who redeems us from our bondage to sin, Satan, and death, redeems place redeems the earth so that we are finally in the new heavens and new earth put back where we belong put back in the land that god had made for us that's the way that story works from beginning to end place is that particular it's that defined it's that important it's that appointed by god you are not where you are by accident Time fails me to speak of uh, New Covenant, New Testament places and houses, uh, whether we think of Mary and Martha's house or Cornelius's home or uh, uh, Peter's family's home or Zacchaeus's house or Aquila and Priscilla or, for that matter, Philemon's house. 
We can't even talk about all of those places right now. But what I want to do then is having kind of, I, I hope, shown to us how grand is the plan of God in its breadth and how specific it is to the room in which you live, to say, all right, what are some of the implications of this? What, what, what difference does that make in the grand scheme of our lives? I'm going to give you three general, and then I'll, I'll drill it down a little bit more to be specific. The first general principle is this. You are where you are by God's appointment. Don't think otherwise. You are where you are at his command, and, and so is your neighbor. It's not an accident that you are where you are. We are deliberately placed by God. I think I quoted earlier an author who writes this, one of the great sins of the 20th century is the idea that we would be happier if we were in another place, if we were someplace else. I think we recognize, and the world throughout history has recognized this, that indeed people move, people seek to improve their situation in life. We are, after all, a nation of immigrants. Everybody here came from somewhere else, some other border that had been designed by God for us and for our people. We're all immigrants to this place. And it's okay to desire to improve as long as we recognize the importance and the significance of the places that God has given to us now and that we seek to be with the Lord content in those places, that all of our moving about isn't just the sin of discontentment, the sin of covetousness being played out in our lives from, as we move from place to place. We are called to be content with our present place, with our present lot in life. We're not to covet someone else's place, someone else's lot. We are to flourish in and steward the place where we are, the place where we are right now. Second general principle. Ownership is of the Lord, and it is biblical. You can own land, a place of our own, can be said, it can be referred to as a dream. Won't it be great when we have a place of our own? It can be said with a clear conscience, biblically speaking, as long as we appreciate the greater perspective, as long as we consciously appreciate the greater perspective, which of course we've already read, for the land is mine. Leviticus 25.10, it shouldn't be sold in perpetuity, the land belongs to the Lord. From an earthly perspective, then, I'm an owner. I can be an owner. You are an owner. You can be an owner. But from a heavenly perspective, I'm not an owner. I'm a steward. I'm a steward of wherever it is, a steward of a church building, a steward of the home, the apartment, the room, the dorm room in which we live. It's not mine. And, and, and that means that there's a question that a steward is supposed to ask, and that is, what should I do in this place that would be pleasing to the king who owns this place? How do I take care of the place that belongs to the king? What would honor him? Does, does the way that the king cares for his place impact the way that I'm supposed to care 
for my place that God has assigned to me. Third general principle. Our place, our home, is to be the place where we are to serve the Lord today, as long as it's called today. So Joshua, having received his inheritance, his particular place at the end of the distribution of all the places, says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for you and your house, I call you to do that, but you have to make that decision. We are to serve the Lord in the place that has been given to us. Of course, when you went to the place that the Lord had chosen for his dwelling place, for his name, when you get to Jerusalem and you go outside the temple and you're bringing your offerings to the temple, we recognize and, and Israel recognized that when you're in that place, you should obey the Lord. It's kind of obvious. You're standing in the presence of God. You need to obey the Lord. So, you know, you, you come to church and everybody goes, we should talk to one another nicely. <laughs> we get it. This should be a place where you obey the Lord. But the idea is that that extends out. Having been in that house informs you of what life should be like in your house. They're not two separate things. They're two organically related things. So you go to the house of the Lord, you experience there the time of worship, the hearing of the word of God, the law of God, and you go back home, blessed. And you go back home and you go, okay, what am I supposed to do now? We read this already uh, in the Joshua passage earlier when Joshua is exhorting the tribes. He says, when you go back there, when you go to that land, be careful, very careful, to observe the commandment of the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to cling to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those weren't things you were just supposed to do when you were on this side of the Jordan. That's what you've got to do when you go back home as well. You have been given a place wherein you are to serve the Lord, love those who are around you, to seek the welfare, the well-being of your neighbors, as well as yourself. So we have responsibilities with, with respect to our place, whether that is our workplace, our dorm room, as I said, a church place, or our home place. We are where we are, by divine appointment, as a steward owner with a divine mission that is to be fulfilled within context of our place. Now let me drill down a little bit. I'm going to give you some very specific things that the scripture says about a place. First of all, in your place, you are to care and protect your place. Care and protect, or you might say it this way, cultivate and guard, work and keep those are all just various translations that should sound familiar to you. It is what Adam and Eve, Adam first, and then Eve by definition joining with him, were to do with respect to the home that God created for them, the appointed place where God put them. You care for, cultivate, work, and you keep, guard, and protect. This place that I'm giving to you, that's what Eden was like, that was the call there. That also was the call to the Levitical priesthood. The exact same words are used to describe what the priest's responsibility are with respect to the temple or to the tabernacle and then to the temple as well. You care for it and you guard it. 
Those were the two things that you were charged to do with respect to your place. And I want to give an example of this. It's on page seven of your bulletins. It's the passage from Proverbs. I'll read it for you. It's at the bottom of seven, section six. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and I received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Okay, there are threats out there. There, there, are, there are dangers in this world. True, even in Eden, right? There was danger in the world that God had created. There was a serpent. There was an evil one. You've got to guard this place that I have created. You'll notice then that when the observer of that field kind of looks at it and looks at the stone wall and sees it broken down and looks at the thorns and the thistles that are growing everywhere and the unkept vines, he doesn't say, tough luck. Man, you got a bad lot here. You know, it's... I got a good lot, the Lord gave me a good lot, he gave you a bad one, I'm sorry, that's, that's just tough. He doesn't say that. He, he puts the responsibility on the person who owns the land to say, you haven't done what you should have done with this land, namely, you haven't cared for it and you haven't guarded it. And it's obvious. It's obvious. It, it, this is as, there's illustrations that you could do here and it's just literal as well. Every one of us knows if you don't care for your place, it will decay. It will decay. There's no doubt about it. You can't just hope it will get better on its own. It won't. You and your place go together. It is shaped by you and it shapes you. So, sorry, I'm going to be graphic here. If I don't pick up the stuff that Nelson does, what will be the state of the backyard? unpleasant right right an unpleasant place to be unless I work it we can understand this on an individual perspective if sorry kids if you don't clean up your room guess what the state of it will be a disaster zone a mess a mess but you're called to care for it and to protect that place it is the place that has been given to you by God we recognize this on an individual perspective let me, just, let me just extend it out just a little bit. Because we recognize it on an individual perspective, it should be not very difficult for us to recognize this on a community level as well. Communities can make decision, decisions with respect to place that either enhance or destroy that place. Now, as Christians, we get a little nervous sometimes about the environmental movement because we think, wait, all of these environmentalists are godless people who worship the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And sure, there could be extremes that are there, but Christians should recognize above all the, the reality that we as people are given particular responsibility to care and protect space. That means we can influence it. We can shape it, and we have the responsibility to do exactly that. We should look at it on a private, individual level, and we should be able to see how that might extend into decisions that are made within the public sphere as well. 
in a, in, in a township even. How, what difference does that make? Okay, next thing. In your place, beauty and order should exist. If we had the opportunity to go and visit Eden, which at least we do by reading, we can see the beauty and the order that God creates there. It is not random, it is not chaos, everything has its place. And the way that it goes together and the way that it reproduces, it's all ordered. And I think if we'd have gone there, and I think Adam and Eve probably looked around and went, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful place. And if we went to the temple or to the tabernacle, what we would have been struck by is the fact that it was beautiful and it was orderly. And now, beauty and order is up to you. To beautify and to bring order to your space, is th those are not matters of indifference. They are part of an abundant life in the Lord, to beautify and bring order to your particular space. You know that one of my favorite passages is from Proverbs 24, by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. It takes thought, it takes planning to do that, and that description is that description because that's the way God made the world. I won't go back and read it, you can read it in Proverbs chapter 3, that's the exact process that the creator used and we the creature are to look at what the creator has done and go okay I see that in this house how do I bring that to my house how do I bring that beauty that order to my place uh, Elizabeth Elliot if she was sitting here and she were taking notes on this sermon would either raise her hand and say pastor or she would be writing down in her notes there's a place for everything and everything in its place that's Elizabeth Elliot will be writing that. Third thing in terms of drilling down. In your place, practice hospitality. Practice refreshing and resting other people as the circumstances allow you, as your situation in life allows you. It doesn't allow all of us to do that. Giving to others. Paul is in prison when he writes to Philemon. He's in a horrible place. And yet in this horrible place, Onesimus has come to know the Lord and others have come to know the Lord. But he's reflecting back while he's in this horrible place about the times of refreshment that he and now others are experiencing over at Philemon's place. And he says to him, brother, I'm encouraged right now. I'm, I'm refreshed because I hear of how the saints are refreshed at your place. But brother, I want you to refresh my heart. It, it, there's, a, there's a soul issue here. Refresh my heart by uh, freeing Onesimus and, and, and refresh my body because I'm getting ready to come out of prison. And when I come out of prison, ma'am, would you prepare a bed for me? Prepare a room for me. The, the refreshment and the resting that Philemon provided for Paul and for many other of the saints at his place was a holistic resting and a holistic refreshment that took place. It wasn't just that you got a good meal here. 
it, it was all that came around it. It was all of the surrounding. It was the people who were there. It were the prayers that were offered. It was the vibe of the place that rested and refreshed the people who went there. And, and Edith Schaefer is the one who writes beautifully of this. So if you want to learn about these things, go to Edith, Edith Schaefer and Elizabeth Elliot, and they'll teach you. Fourth, I have uh, emphasized with respect to place what we are to do in our place, but the call is also for us to love our place, for us to love it, to enjoy it, to rest and to be refreshed in our place, which as we know, to enjoy something is not in any way inconsistent with the call to glorify a place. Uh, many of you know my regard for Wendell Berry as an author. I don't think there is an author that writes better and more clearly about the importance of place than Wendell Berry does. And he has a phrase that is simple that captures this. He says, it all turns on affection. With respect to your place, it all turns on affection. In your place, you are called to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In your place you are called to love your neighbor as yourself, and you are invited to love the place that God has given to you. I suspect that Adam and Eve loved Eve before the fall and before they were driven out. And I'm 100% sure that you and I are going to love the place that Jesus is preparing for us. In the meantime, it turns on affection now as well. Practice what was and what will be in the meantime. Love in the place and of the place that God has given to you. You don't need to shy away from that because of idolatry. Idolatry is possible, but there's a beautiful call to love what God has given to us. He delights. He rejoices in the work of his hands, in his development of place. You can too in his and in yours as well. All right, we wrap this up with the verse that's on the front of your bulletin. One thing that puts our appreciation with respect to our place on earth into perspective. Psalm 16, five through six. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. That's Joshua language, language of inheritance, language of lot, language of lines. That's all Joshua language. But the point that the psalmist is making is this. Even if we had no place on earth, even if we lose everything, even if we're in a prison cell, in a hospital bed, even if we end up as refugees, moving about in tents with no place to call our own, we are not empty-handed. The Lord is our portion. The Lord is our lot. We have him. We have him as our dwelling place. Remember that the Levites had no inheritance in the land. They didn't have a perpetual inheritance in the land. Why? 
because the Lord was their portion. Well, you are a royal priesthood, sojourners in this world, strangers, aliens, exiles, temporary residents, stewards, albeit, of the places where we dwell. And even so, with the Lord as our portion, we are then able to say, the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. Father, we pray that you would help us to see you above all, to have rightly ordered affections, that in the first place, thank you for the inheritance of yourself, for the fact that you are our God, we, your people, and you will dwell with us forever. And then affections that align under that appropriately, according to your word, according to your will. Help us, your people, to live faithfully with servants' hearts and full of love in the places that you have given to us. Help us to be content whatever our lot and seek with all of our hearts, we and our houses, to serve you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.